and do turn with me in your Bibles or find in your bulletin insert our passage of Scripture. We'll use this as a unison reading together. It is a jam-packed passage of Scripture. We could easily do three or four sermons at least on what is in this particular uh, passage, but uh, hopefully we'll make sense of it in the sermon in a way that you can use in the days to come. So we begin to read together the Word of God at verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In his classic book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church, Jack Miller lamented the way in which so many churches of his day and time were becoming what he termed religious cushions. Now, we know what pew cushions are, but what do you think a religious cushion is? It was his way of referring to churches that had grown in on themselves, what he refers to as ingrown churches, meaning that they were nothing more than retreat centers where anxious people drew resources to help them cope with whatever life was throwing at them that particular week, and he claims that he got sucked into all of that. 
And when I say that, I don't want you to misunderstand part of the life of the church, not all of the life of the church, but part of the life of the church certainly is to serve and to help meet needs. That's what many of those one another verses that we see sprinkled all throughout the New Testament are all about, how we are to love one another and support one another and encourage one another, pray for one another, those kinds of things. That's all well and good, but that's not all that the local church is called to be and to do. There's this little matter of the Great Commission that Jesus gives us in Matthew 28 where he tells us to go out and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the close of the age. The fact that many churches were moving so far to the looking inward extreme is what had Jack Miller bothered. And I quote, By April 1970, I had grown sick to death of the church viewed as religious cushion and me as chief cushioner. I had been a pastor for more than a decade and an instructor at Westminster Theological Seminary for four years. I had given it all my best shot. But as a change agent, I had bombed out. In a mood of dark despair, I resigned from both the seminary faculty and from my pastorate at a church, seeing no future for the Christian church and soured by my own failure as an instrument of change, I agreed with Pogo's comment, we have met the enemy and he is us. Now you younger people, if you don't know who Pogo is, you ask your grandparents about that. They can fill you in. Now with this being Mother's Day, you mothers out there need to know that a mother was somewhat instrumental in resolving Jack Miller's dilemma. It was ultimately the, the Holy Spirit, but also the mother of his children, his own wife, Rose Marie, who insisted that the family get away for a little while so that Jack might have some time for uninterrupted study, and they ended up in Barcelona for three months. must be nice to have friends who have an apartment in Barcelona. You can just settle in for free for three months and do study on the promises of God which is what he did. He writes in that book, As the weeks passed, my mind began to be captured by the vastness of God's promises. I was awed by what the risen Lord had promised to me in my weakness. While I was studying the Gospel of John, my mind was challenged by the now character of promise passages like John 7, 37 through 39. In this passage, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He that believes in me from within him, as the scripture has said, will flow rivers of living water. As I meditated on this teaching, the present significance of the promise became clear. The rivers of living water signified life-giving power from above to flow in and through the believer, power for 
holy living and daring witness. There's a strong now implication, he says, in Jesus' words. The promise of verse 38 is in the Greek present. It's linear, ongoing, expressing habitual or continuously present activity. In other words, Jesus was saying the abundance of the Spirit is for those who are believing now and who keep right on believing. This was a life-changing discovery for me. Not only did it awaken my confidence in Christ's availability to help me, but it also began to work in me as a new release from my own self-dependence and self-effort. Now, I know that's a long quotation, but you needed to hear it because this is what Paul has been talking about for verses on end in this letter to the church at Rome. Are we going to depend on ourselves, our own self-effort, in doing works of the law, or are we going to live each day by the power of the Holy Spirit? And this is so important, it's so life-changing, because through this series on Romans, hopefully, we've come to see that many of us have been taught incorrectly over the years, or at least we've heard it the wrong way. Instead of being taught to claim the divine power we possess and to live above the drag of our sinful nature, we're, we're primarily taught what to do after we sin. In other words, our mindset has been nurtured by corrective theology instead of by preventive theology, as Chuck Swindoll puts it. Thus, we've come to expect failure. We've come to expect disobedience in our lives. We've come to expect resistance to the things that God tells us in His Holy Word that are so good for us and will bless us. And we've learned to focus our attention on sin instead of focusing on righteousness. It's, it's no wonder that this kind of of thought process or learning has led many of us to both a defeatist attitude and a view of the life of faith as one of endurance, something we just have to kind of muddle through instead of one of joy. And you see, that's what was happening in Jack Miller's life. The life of faith was something he was having to just persevere through and make it and muddle through and he could see no victories. The good news for you and me is that even though we live in a fallen world, God did not save us so that we'd have to suffer through some miserable spiritual life without ever seeing any victories whatsoever. We have to remember, as we've already discovered in this letter, that sanctification, just like salvation, just like justification, is a work of God. You know, Paul in Romans 3, 4, and 5 was talking about justification. Then in chapter 6, he began to talk about sanctification, and he's still talking about sanctification. He's still talking about living our lives so that we become more and more conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. 
We're simply called to cooperate with God through this process we refer to as sanctification, of growing in our faith. And we can see this truth that it's God's work in several places in the New Testament. Think of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will be what? He'll be faithful to complete it. Notice that God starts that work. Many of us have sung that song at Bon Clarkin for years. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Think about Ephesians chapter 2. Some of us have those verses 8 and 9 committed to memory because they have to do with our salvation. By grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not because of works, lest any man should boast. And those are great verses, and we should know those. But do you know what Paul says right after those two verses? That's where he says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see what that means? That means that God has not only acted and planned to save you and me, but He's also designed our lives. He has a purpose and a plan for us. He's prepared good works beforehand that we should walk in them. He has a plan for our sanctification, not just for our salvation. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5, right near the end of the letter, Paul makes it very clear. May the God of, of peace himself sanctify you wholly. And may your spirit and soul and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful and he <coughs> will do it. Well, if God has designed all of these good works to take place in our lives, how do we get on board? How do we participate in what He's planned for us? Well, according to our text, Paul says we need to do two things, first of all. The first one is we're not, not to indebt ourselves to the flesh. And secondly, we're commit ourselves, rather, to the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. We're to, in other words, live by the Spirit. Pray to the Spirit. Pray for His power each day. Pray that God will tell us what His Holy Spirit is doing around us so that we can participate in that work. And as we commit ourselves to living by the Spirit, look at what we can anticipate from God. We see it there in verses 14 through 17. We see that, first of all, the Holy Spirit provides leadership in our lives. That's one of the tasks, that's one of the responsibilities of the Holy Spirit to guide us, to lead us, to guide us into all truth, as Jesus puts it to his disciples in John 16, 13. Then we can see not only leadership, but a special closeness with God. We have received the spirit of adoption as sons. God's not only saved us from sin, he's adopted us into his family. And we know the kind of love and work and planning it takes to adopt a child because we all know someone who's adopted a child or children. And that's what God has done for us. He's adopted us 
into his family. And ladies, as we've talked about before, uh, that, that uh, term sons there is not a sexist term. Paul's going to emphasize the ability to inherit, to become an heir. And that's why he uses the term sons first. Because in the ancient society, only sons could inherit. And not only do we have this special relationship with God as one of His children, but He also gives us the gift of assurance. Look at verse 16. The Spirit Himself, which is what Charles was talking about with the children, bears both children. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have this reassurance and this testimony that our salvation is safe in Christ Jesus even as we call on God our Father for all that we need. And finally, we can see God's assurance that we have great value in His sight for we are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. You see what that means? Much like Abraham, we're heirs of the promise. Heirs of eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Heirs of the work of God Himself. Heirs of, as Karl Barth puts it, the being and having and doing of God Himself, which because of sin had become impossible. But with God, all things are possible, aren't they? That's the truth of His Word. Now, before we leave this first paragraph, notice the overall effect. As, as one of the church fathers reminds us, the Holy Spirit is a glad spirit. And this means that those of us who have some sort of relapse into fear as we go through our lives week in and week out are declaring by that fear that we have not really grasped the deliverance which the gospel offers. Paul says here, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. You see, each relationship has its appropriate emotional environment. In slavery to sin, Paul makes it clear, that emotional environment is fear. But as children of God, we have confidence. We have reassurance. We have the promise of God Himself that He'll be with us. And we have joy. Now all of this good news about life in the Spirit could imply, I say could imply, that we'll never have any major problems, that you know life will be good and productive and we'll just continue along to grow in our faith and have an impact on people around us and eventually... God will take us from this earth at the end of a long and fruitful and blessed life and ministry. Really? Is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what happened to Jesus and the disciples? As we read through the Gospels and the book of Acts and the letters of Paul and Peter, is that what we really see? Living life in the Spirit is all about? No. You see, Paul wants to talk about glory in this next paragraph, but before he can talk about glory, he has to talk about suffering. Because suffering always comes before glory. Or at least it did in Jesus' life. Philippians 2, Jesus humbled himself, took on the form of flesh, 
became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him. You see, suffering comes before glorification. And in his brief words here on suffering, we can see that suffering is certain. It is going to happen to you and me at some point in time, maybe several times. There is a purpose to suffering, and that purpose is the goal of glorification. And there is no comparison between whatever sufferings we have to go through and endure in this life with the glory that is to come in the future. And in order to explain more, Paul draws an analogy from the creation itself. Because with the points that he's making, the creation is much the same as we are in the sense that our groaning is temporary. Our groaning is a consequence of sin. And we see those consequences of sin, you know, in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve disobey God, and God begins to talk about what's going to take place because sin has come into the world. And one of those consequences is that the earth itself will be affected. We can also see that the groaning is a means to an end. And it's universal. All people are affected. In fact, the whole earth, the whole creation groans. Nothing is exempt from the effects of sin. And even though he uses this as an analogy, all of this is still true you see, about the entire creation. In other words, this isn't simply an illustration. It's not some kind of allegorical tale that Paul is telling here. The creation actually groans with us just as we do because of the fall and the effects of sin at work in the world. This is why the Bible tells us in more than one place that there's not going to just be one day a new heaven. There's going to be a new heaven and a new what? Earth as Isaiah 65 prophesies. And as Revelation 21 comes along and John, I think, echoes what Isaiah 65 has to say. Now, for those of you that are careful listeners or readers, you may have picked up on the fact that in verse 23, Paul says, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. That sounds like something in the future, doesn't it? But didn't he just say in verse 15 that we've already been adopted? Didn't he just say in verse 16 that we're already children of God? Yes, he said that. So how can you, can you somehow bring resolution to all of that? Well, this is one of the many places in the New Testament where we find an example of what some scholars refer to as the already, not yet, tension that we see about the Christian life in this age in which we live. As Paul has been discussing, we have life in the Spirit. We know that. The Holy Spirit's given to us when we're converted. He comes to live within us so that our bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, and yet sin lies close at hand. So which is it? Are we holy or are we sinful? It's that already, not yet, tension. In much the same way, we are God's children. We've been saved and adopted 
into his family. We are heirs of his and joint heirs with Christ. We can speak about that in terms that it's already happened because that's what the Bible speaks about it in terms of. But we are not yet fully sanctified, are we? We are not yet fully redeemed. We're not yet glorified. And so there's that already and not yet tension. We're in that time where we see only as in a mirror dimly, but one day we know it will be face-to-face, and in that face-to-face day we will possess the full inheritance and will enjoy perfect holiness in resurrected and glorified bodies. But not yet. And that's why hope becomes so important. God has promised us glory, a glory already existing in heaven for each of us, but we can't see it, we can't touch it, we can't smell it or taste it, we can't even imagine very much about it. And because that's true, we find that we are prisoners of hope. Paul assures us that this hope is not the normal hope you and I speak about each day. You know, when we say things like, well, I hope the weather's pretty on our week of vacation over in June, or I sure hope he doesn't preach a long sermon today. You know, that's not the kind of hope that Paul's talking about here. Christian hope is not some aspiration for which we yearn in this life. Christian hope is founded in God Himself. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, as the hymn writer puts it. In his first letter, chapter 5, Peter writes, Let those who suffer according to God's will do right and entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. It's the God who has made this creation that groans, the one who is all-powerful and all-faithful. It's this God in whom we trust and hope, the same God who shows His love for us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, the same God who will glorify us and redeem our bodies when the Lord Jesus returns, the same God through whose mercy, Peter tells us, we've been born anew to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, and to an inheritance which is imperishable, unfading, undefiled, kept in heaven for you and for me. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like good news to me. This living hope that is ours as members of God's family. So believe it and live in His peace. Amen. Amen.